Hello and welcome to series two, episode five of To The Studio. I hope that you and your loved ones are all keeping well, safe and buoyant in these uncertain and strange times we're in. And we hope as a podcast that we can help you out with that a little bit. Some good news is that we've managed to work out a way to carry on our conversations online. And whilst the audio quality might not be as great as what you've been used to in previous episodes, we hope that the quality of conversations are just the same. Today, we have Matthew Burrows on the podcast. Matthew was born in 1971 in the Wirral in the United Kingdom, and he currently lives and works in East Sussex. He studied as an undergraduate at Birmingham School of Art between 1990 and 1993, and graduated with a master's degree in painting from the Royal College of Art in 1995. Matthew's studio, on the site of an old windmill, is perched on a ridge between valleys. Despite the beautiful views and clear vistas, his sense of place is far from sentimental. His relationship with habitat is not one of description or nostalgia, but one of dwelling and ritual. It is a process of mythologizing, of drawing meaning from the particularities of the environment, of realizing its wilderness and ours. I caught up with Matt a week or so after he set up his most recent initiative, the Artist Support Pledge. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, many artists have found themselves without work, teaching, technical support, gallery work, and the initiative aims to alleviate some of the stresses that pandemic has caused as many artists around the world have now found themselves without work. The concept is a simple one. Artists post images of their work on Instagram, which they're willing to sell for no more than £200. Anyone can buy the work, and every time an artist reaches £1,000 of sales, they pledge to spend £200 on another artist's work. As well as this initiative, we talk about his other project, the ABC Projects Atelier, that aims to support create and maintain critical engagement and networks for artists, as well as his interest in the wilderness, the importance of support structures and breaking down hierarchies, the power of generosity, and how artists might readdress their roles within our current systems. So I hope you enjoy our chat. Thanks very much for listening. Um, so how, how are you doing? Um, I'm tired, um, but good, actually. Very motivated still. Um, you know, it's if you'd asked me 10 days ago, would I be doing this? Never in a, a million years would I have imagined this last week. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't have made it up, couldn't have written it down. Um, it's been quite a ride. And I, I think if I'd known it, this was going to happen, I'd have been terrified. <laughs> but... Uh, it's amazing what you can do when you've when you've got you know that many people excited and and um, enthused and and genuinely sort of kind of moved by the whole movement. Really, I mean that's what it is. It's not. I mean I, I think people on the outside who who aren't quite who don't sort of um, haven't experienced it or haven't seen how it's emerged assume there's this sort of institution somewhere or there's um, you know, a group of people organising all this, and it, it really isn't. It's, it's kind of me in my studio with a phone and my, and my laptop, and that's it. Um, and, I've, you know, I've got people and friends who've helped me out with things. 
mm. which has been you know great. But that's all it is. It's just really one guy with a with a sort of vision for a, a different way of thinking about how artists might cooperate and how there might be a, a sort of cultural economy that might sit within and under and through other economies. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I am obviously I'm I, I'm really eager to talk about this artist support pledge that that, that you've got going, um, and I'm yeah I'm looking forward to chatting about that. Um, but I think to begin with, um, it's important to acknowledge that you're an artist yourself, um, and <laughs> and that you have a practice, um, one that you've been kind of following for well for quite for quite quite a while. Yeah. Um, so I think to begin with. Um, it'd be nice to learn a bit more about you, really, and your background, um, and when painting started to become important to you. And yeah, uh, well, I um, graduated from Royal College uh, in sort of I think about '95. Hard to remember now. <laughs> and in painting, and I've pretty much been a painter since. Uh, I spent a bit of time uh, lecturing universities um, earlier on in sort of in the mid '90s, mm. but I've worked full time as a painter. Um, for the last 25, 30 years now. Um, I now live in uh, just outside Rye in East Sussex. I have a studio and a house there. So I, I, I live and work in isolation every day, so <laughs> nothing's really changed. Other <laughs> than it's quieter. Um, and yes, until a week ago, I was busy painting. And then, um, you know, the, as COVID-19 sort of took over, you know, that sort of stopped abruptly one day and then since then I've been de dealing with this but yes for, for the last 25 years I've been slowly developing a kind of practice that has really in the last few years been much more about the relationship between environments uh, and artists in relationship to that environment so you know traditionally that might have been thought of as been landscape painting but I've sort of evolved into a sort of sense that actually it's not really about the view and looking at the world, but it's actually about being within and through it. So it's sort of painting as a kind of metaphor for that experience. Yeah. Um, and that sort of evolved really in the last couple of years. And, and through that has a sort of an approach to thinking about art and thinking about culture that is one which really isn't about sort of control and power, but it is about our relationship to it. And um, to try and find a way of making that relationship um, integral to it. So, I mean, if you think about the landscape painting as having developed out of industrial society, and because of that, it's it's it, in a way it's always about sort of looking at a framed view, looking at something that is controlled and distant and over there, and we look at it kind of conceptually, or or uh, we control it through the picture frame. Whereas, I suppose I've what I started to understand is that. For me as a painter, the landscape is something one has to inhabit, dwell within and through. And only when I've been able to start doing that have I understood it as a part of painting. Um, and one of the things that um, maybe some of your listeners will know is that I sort of have a strange, slightly strange reputation for doing endurance sports, yeah. <laughs> uh, mainly endurance running. And I so I do sort of um, what's called ultra marathons, which are basically anything over 30 miles. Normally, the well, always in the landscape. But um, so I, you know, I happily run sort of 50 miles through the landscape, and that gives you a very different relationship to the ground, your feet, to the 
landscape around you, how you feel about it. It's not you. You don't sort of look at it in the same way. You, it feels like you are part of it. It's like you're. It's like a relationship. I think of it as being like the relationship between a lover, uh, or between lovers. Sorry, there, there's that sense of touch and smell and feel that is absolutely intrinsic. You know it, no matter what. Mm. And that's for me is that relationship to the landscape now, and that's become sort of central to my painting. Trying to find a way of painting and a kind of metaphor and an approach to painting that somehow manifests that relationship. Yeah, yeah, because the last show that I saw of yours was um, Beyond the Wall at Vigo Gallery um, yeah. in 2017. Yeah, beyond the, beyond the Garden Wall, I think it was. Yeah, 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 Beyond, yeah, beyond yes. the Garden Wall. Sorry, what, what did I say? <laughs> beyond the Wall. Oh, sorry, Beyond the Garden Wall. That, yeah, that's quite intrinsic. <laughs> um, and, um, and within that body of work, I remember you described yourself as a metaphorical kind of gardener. Yeah. Um, and, um, well, yeah, I, I guess you've, you've started to kind of ex explain a bit about um, what you kind of meant by that. Um, but is that still a thought that's carrying through the work now? And kind of what did you mean by that kind of, you know, being a gardener? As such? Yeah, I, I, for a number of years, I think as this transition happened and started to happen maybe 10 years ago, uh, in my thinking, that initially it was about the idea of artists as gardener, that the artist is someone who deals with nature, that nature is all around us. Nature is not something distant over there. I mean, n nature is human as well. We are nature. We are part of nature. And that, you know, walking through the city is still a part of nature. It's, it's part of human nature. And I sort of saw the garden really as a kind of space between those worlds, a space between human nature and culture and wilderness and wild nature and the nature out there that happily goes about its business without us as long as we don't meddle with it. And so the garden became a kind of metaphor for how we explore that relationship. Um, you know, even things like how you think about compost, you know, compost, if you think about compost as a metaphor for making art, it's a sort of detritus of past glories rotted down and made into to food for new thought. So all of those sort of analogies that the uh, analogous to gardening became sort of a means for me to understand, start to understand a new relationship with nature. But in the last, probably the last two years, that's moved on. And uh, interestingly, since Beyond the Garden Wall, which was actually a good title now, I realise, <laughs> that actually Beyond the Garden Wall really was about saying that beyond that those boundaries, beyond the boundaries of cultivated nature, beyond the boundaries of the nature we control as human beings. There is another nature, and what is that? And what I've begun to realise that that there's there's a that nature outside is that I think now that as sort of wilderness. I think of that as wild space, and that actually wilderness is 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 nature that is just allowed to be itself. And actually, I realise that actually our disconnection with wilderness is the real problem. When we control nature as an idea and a concept, that we look at it and think, okay, there's nature, there's a nice view. We don't really understand its wilderness. We don't understand what makes it wild. And there's a great sort of, uh, I'm going to have to paraphrase, I can't remember the quote exactly, but a quote by the uh, anthropologist Levi Strauss that is, goes something like, um, art is the wilderness of culture. And I like that idea that if we, 
if art loses its its relationship to true wilderness and only ever relies on its own digestive system, keeps consuming itself, it becomes a kind of monster. It becomes a sort of um, uncontrolled beast that doesn't really in any way reflect the reality that is, is wilderness. And there's always this sort of sense implicit within, I guess, the modern world that somehow human culture, human nature is superior to it, superior to nature, that we are our intelligence and our imagination and our um, our inventions are controlling that and manipulating it. And yet, and that is true, but all we've actually done to that is, is kill it. Or we've used it as a resource, we've not respected its, uh, its integrity and its integral necessity. And I've begun to realize that actually finding a new relationship to wilderness culturally and personally internally with yourself inside of nature and wilderness is is probably where i need to go as an artist in terms of thinking about art's relationship to the environment and moving forward into a new era of thinking culturally that it's i don't think it's possible to carry on thinking of art as a self-consuming and generating entity that in some way doesn't manifest that wilderness, the wilderness of the nature around us, but also the wilderness of human nature too. Mm. So that's become, you know, what I what I deal with. And in a way, that's, I guess, what's allowed me to do this campaign, because out of the back of that, I've been working on a project for 12 years now called ABC Project Atelier, yeah. which yeah. I think you've, you've heard of. Mm which is, is, a, is a, it's a peer mentoring uh, program for, for artists, for people who've already trained, have done their, perhaps already done their BAs and MAs. It's not essential you have. It's really about people who've been out there working as artists for a number of years and need to sort of reignite, reboot, need support, uh, need connections with peers. I need to go really to another level of, of, the, you know, of dealing with their work and themselves within, within the artistic environment. And it has a, I have a culture for that ABC Projects Atelier, and that culture is, it's twofold really. It's a culture of trust and generosity, and that's its bedrock, because I think without that, nothing else is possible. But it's, that is, is really sort of done in... Uh... <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> Sorry, my phone is going off. Okay, yeah, so... Um, Ethos of uh, ABC Project Atelier really is about a relationship between sort of trust and generosity and balancing that with kind of honesty and critical rigour. And it might seem very obvious. I mean, I say that and it's just words, but actually when you sort of dig into it a little bit, you realise what, what it means. And if you, if you had a, a critical forum that's extremely robust and, and honest, um, it, it, in the wrong context, that can be... Um, damaging because it actually it can it can it, it can do too much damage to a sensitive set of relationships. So you have to kind of create this environment where there's a there's a relationship of trust between participants and an absolute generosity of spirit to make that work. Mm. That it's not only a generosity that you're giving to them, but they are generous generously receiving that information and dealing with it. If you don't get that, if you don't get that relationship right, it doesn't work. You know, it's 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 very quickly moved into so either 
sort of ego trading or um, people withdrawing because they aren't um, confident enough to deal with the dialogue. Mm. So that's been my ethos for that for you know, 12 years now. And it's been extraordinarily successful as an ethos. And so I've always been using that. And then when when the um, so when this COVID-19 stuff started taking off, I that was my response. What would ABC Projects do? Mm. It would it would develop a, a culture of trust and generosity. That's what it would do. That was my an immediate reaction um, to what I should you know to what I should do. But it, it then took a bit of time to work out what that might be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so how so? What's the format of this of, of the Projects Atelier? How do um, how do people apply? And is it is it studio based or? Well, basically, I run it largely for my studio, but I do occasionally do it from other people's um, places as well, if, it, if it's, that's on request. And it works over two days, and normally it's about four people at a time. So it's quite, you know, it's quite an intimate environment, um, largely because it's quite, an, it's quite a lot of work to get through in two days. So more than four, and it just, it's not doable. Um, and there's, there's sort of a number of, I, I sort of have two processes that I use, uh, or, or two sort of approaches and strategies. And these, these can vary. I do change a little bit over the years, but there's one which I call the investigative tool, another one which I call the navigational tool. And the investigative tool really is a kind of a fairly well-practiced one within different um, professions. And the journalists and detectives use it, and it's quite well known. It's sort of the who, what, when, where, why, how. So who are you? What do you do? When do you do it? What's your contemporary context? In what world are you working in? Where are you doing it? So where in history do you stand? What what part of the story are you in? Uh, Why do you do it? I think of as what motivates you, what drives you to do what you do, what gets you into the studio, what makes you pick up a paintbrush or whatever it is you do or a camera. Mm. And how is really the working conditions? How do you go about making work? What are the working conditions you work in? And are you working in those, are those conditions effective? Are they actually set up appropriately to answer your unique set of, your unique situation, set of problems? So really it's about, that's about kind of housekeeping. You know, it's about clearing out the metaphorical house, your studio and and mind, Mm. working out what it is you actually need to put back in and putting them back in, in in the order that's appropriate to make your practice as effective as possible because making art is is clunky and chaotic as you know and it's 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 a difficult thing to do and if you're doing that if you're making that more difficult by having an environment and working conditions that are ineffective and not understanding the broader context and the specific context of what you do and actually even understanding what you do that you understand the sort of skills necessary to make manifest the sort of things that you want to make, then all of those things need looking at. And if you don't know how to do it, how do you find out and who can help? And then the second tool we use, which is really something that I kind of came up with myself from um, really from spending so many years running through landscapes, and I call it the navigational tool. And it's a simple idea, really. If you're lost, if you don't know what you're doing, if you're stuck, carrying on is not going to help you're more likely to get more lost. And in navigation, when you're learning to navigate, one of the things they teach you is if you lost, the first thing you do is stop because carrying on will get you more lost, take you further away from where you want to be. So you stop, you work out where your north is, 
and you work out where you are on the map. That's a classic navigational tool that anyone navigating will use. So in effect, we're using that as a sort of metaphor for understanding how you move forward as an artist. So we work out what your compass is, what your north is, what values do you have in your north? What are the things you actually need to be moving towards? And if you're moving towards those, you're more likely to be manifesting a level of energy and um, focus and all those sorts of things. If you're not moving towards your north, you tend to start manifesting things like anxiety and frustration and procrastination. And I mean, all of those familiar experiences that most artists will experience very regularly, but they are, if you like, that's you, that's you kind of navigating your compass. It's knowing which way is north and south. Mm. So you, when you realize that you're starting to feel those levels of anxiety and frustration, etc., you need to recalibrate, recal work out where north is, work out where your values are and move towards those because they will, if you move towards your values, in every way, both in your work, in your life, everything. If you understand those and have a sense of what they are, it's much easier then to navigate the topography, the landscape of your work. So we do that, we work out our compass, what our values are, and, but then we work out, we sort of, in effect, develop a map, a map of who you are as an artist. Um, and that includes a number of things, you know, what your passions are. So we look at your passions in art and life, what you do to play, you know, what the things that you do, the things that drive you, the things that really excite you. We work out your strengths, weaknesses, and the challenges you face as an artist. Um, we work out, again, the conditions, how you work, what conditions you work in, what sort of how you use your time, resources, and um, the context that you work in most effectively. And also, this is the sort of interesting, what's your story? What's the thing that really is central to you? What, is, what are the things, your values, your subjects, your themes, your motifs? What are the things that actually are uniquely yours? What is your story? Because one of the things I've noticed over the years that often goes wrong with, with artists when they're developing their practice is that they, they manifest a, a kind of an identity that is purely based on an object, a thing. So a certain thing might get some traction. It might, get a, it might sell some, or people might say that's really good. And then what happens is people think, okay, that's it. I'll do more of that. And they do it, they do it, and do it. And then what happens is eventually it becomes a sort of cliche. And then they lose interest and focus, but they feel the pressure to keep doing it. But if you know your story, if you know what it is that is central to what you are and what you're about, mm. then actually your work can manifest in many ways. You might make sculpture or painting and photography or film or installation or dance or performance, whatever. But it still manifests your story. So it gives you the ultimate freedom to make are in multiple ways because ultimately you're still dealing with the same thing it's just you're using different tools maybe different skills to do it so that's sort of basically roughly what it is yeah. um, and then there are other things i mean we come up with sort of um, a strategy for how to implement that um partly because what i realized over years of doing this is that it's all very well and good knowing this stuff which is great but actually you need a process you need something to put it into practice you need a way of actually moving forward plan of action if you like no one in any business in any sphere science um, business whatever art would, would successfully move forward in anything without some sort of um, process for doing that so we sort of try to develop kind of short-term and long-term 
plans of action that are, but also flexible because art is a flexible beast and it changes all the time. Mm. So uh, if you understand what that what that sort of plan is, it gives you that flexibility because then you can sort of say, okay, does that take me towards my values or is it taking me away from it? So you're always sort of reassessing. So really it does that. And then the idea of it really is you repeat it about every three or four months. Okay. So it's a cyclical thing. You don't have to do the workshop every three or four months. You can do it on your own or you can do it with... What I try to um, foster is that those who come to do it, that they maintain the relationship with the people they have shared that workshop with. So they keep in contact and that they continue to redo the workshop together. Because I think building little networks of artist groups that are intimately linked and have each other's back builds that bond of trust and generosity. And, you know, well, as you've seen from the last 10 days, it's powerful stuff. Mm. You send out that message into the world you get those groups to articulate that between them, it moves rapidly. And there's nothing that limits it because it's got nothing to do with the normal power structures. It's got nothing to do with the hierarchy of the art world. It's got mm. nothing to do with the art world. It's got nothing to do with politics, gender, nationality, race, religion. It moves across all spheres to all nations. So it's, it's a very compelling idea. And I mean, I've been using it for years. It's worked really well, but... Mm. I have to admit, I hadn't expected to get this amount of traction quite so quickly. <laughs> um, and these kind of methods of reflection, are, are, are they methods of reflection that you use within your own practice too? Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I developed it through doing it myself. And then, I mean, roughly, it's cut a long story short. So 12 years ago, I invited a, a few friends to come along. I'd had this idea for doing something like this. And I'd done a little bit of research, come up with some sort of strategies I thought we could try. And I thought it would be fun. Let's give it a go. You know, for two days, what the hell? You know, if, if, it's, if it's a waste of time, well, at least we'll have a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of beers at the end of the day, um, she's on the beach. So um, it was really stemmed from that. And then I realised rapidly, you know, straight away when we did it, that the uh, it had immediate effect. You know, it wasn't sort of down the line. It was immediate. And it was a profound effect. Uh, so I experimented with it over the last 12 years. It probably took about 10 years to get it to a point where I really understood what worked. I really understood the context in which it worked in and the right orders to do it in, the kind of questions that really needed asking. It's still evolving. I mean, I, I purposely, one of the things I do with it each time is I always leave one a kind of a question unanswered. So I have a, a guest question, I call it, which is, People can bring a question to the table, something that worries them, and we all look at it. Mm. So that um, sometimes that brings really interesting things to it. So, you know, a typical one is somebody came to the came to it saying, "Well, I'm not really so sure what my subject is." So we put that on it. Said, "Okay, well, everyone, what's your subject? What is the subject? What you do?" So then you have to question, "Well, what is that? What do we mean by that? What do we mean by what's your subject?" So it takes you. I mean, we've worked on that maybe three years now. Mm. So when you start digging at something, you realize it's, it's fertile ground. Once you strip it of assumptions that you have built up over perhaps decades for some artists, and those assumptions can be based on, you know, what, one conversation you had at art school that might have been misled. And then a, a kind of conceptual framework is built on that mm. assumption. So we're very, I'm very kind of clear that we don't take anything for granted. We question all assumptions, even the ones that I propagate. 
So even at the end of the sessions, we, we go back over it and go, okay, well, are we making assumptions here? Are we actually asking the question the wrong way? Mm. Um, so it's, it's a very, I've found it to be a very effective tool. And, and, and also, I think the thing that's maybe makes it exciting for me to do, because I love doing it, because I get so much out of doing it with other people. You know, you, you just get to see how other people have to, when, when you see human beings and artists unravel themselves, put themselves back together, it's amazing. Mm. You know, you, you get so much out of it. And you realise really how ineffective so much art education is. Yeah, I was, was going to ask, yeah. Um, you know, how much, it, it could be so much better knowing now what we know about how the human brain works. And also, not only that, in terms of scientifically and neurologically, mm. but if we open up our viewpoints, and this has been something that's been really interesting for me over the last couple of years, most of what we do in our education is based on a very short period of time, maybe a few hundred years. If we really push it, we might go back two or three thousand. That's what we think of as our history. But actually, human beings have been making, making art for hundreds of thousands of years. We don't know how long they've been doing it. Mm. And for a very long time, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, human beings made art effectively, intrinsically, cooperatively without doing damage to the environment so actually there are models of thinking about what it means to be human and to be culturally active which i think are missed out of the equation so that's been something i've been thinking a lot about especially over the last year that i think we're not looking at the picture in a broad enough way and if you do if you do that and then start thinking okay what's neuroscience telling us about the way mm. the brain works and how does that tell us about the way hunter-gatherer cultures worked and how what was their relationship to making art and to community and to society and to work life balance mm. and all of that it's tremendously exciting stuff you know yeah. I, you know I, it's something that's really and because i'm not stuck by an institution you know i, I do this through friends colleagues people who apply to come on to the ABC projects tell you i'm not limited by having to stick to a curriculum or to an institution's gender it's simply okay here we are what works what do we need to know what what do you need what does each artist need what do we need as a culture and as an environment as a group as a network and i always work with that and i go out and i try and find stuff so i'm always digging into new processes so i use all sorts from you know ancient wisdom myths to the very recent um, most recent developments in neuroscience psychology to uh, sports coaching to uh, everything. I mean, I, if, it, if it's going to help, I look at it and I dig right into it and then I try to find stuff within there that we might effectively use as artists be to, to generate um, kind of exciting approaches to making art and to maintaining our practices and our kind of motivation within that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, there's definitely something that from my experience, education is missing in terms of like a flexible working model that can work for individuals rather than it being one size, like a one size fits all kind of education. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's that. I think the thing with, I mean, I've not, let me, don't get me wrong in a way, I think the way an art, art school works in terms of things like artists go in, they make work in a studio play space, tutors come around and talk to them. I think that's a really good model. Yeah. And the problem is, tend to not happen anymore. Um, 
I think where it's limited is that as you move on out of that system, so you go, you know, you might do a BA, you might do an MA, and I think that's great. I think if that system, if that system is properly funded, and if the artists have their studio spaces that are appropriate to their needs, and if there are sufficient tutors and a breadth of knowledge contributing to that, not just two or three tutors, but 20. Um, it's the breadth that matters there. Breadth mm. matters. No point having two or three people with a, with a more limited kind of um, scope, no matter how bright or articulate they are. Mm. Um, that works, but when you go out into the world, you don't have that framework around you anymore. You don't have that structure that a university or an art school, or whatever it is, gives you. Mm. So you need to create new structures. And the, what tends to happen is that I, sort of about five years out of uh, your education, artists tend to start losing track a little bit because all of the sort of nutritional value they got from doing their education in art school um, kind of wears out. It, it burns out and they, they just end up repeating the same thing over and over again. They need a means to move forward. And mm. if they've had any success, often what happens then is that what then starts being replacing that are things like, okay, value systems to do with money, or to do with celebrity, or to do with the traction of, of critical acclaim. And, you know, they exist, it's part of the world, but that is not a very helpful um, kind of background in which to create a value system to develop your work. Mm. It's, it's the system that's there, and you have to navigate it, and you have to deal with it. But if that becomes what motivates what you do, what becomes a driver in what you do, it's very rapidly going to implode. And I've, you know, in a way, that's what, that's why ABC projects develop, because I noticed that happen. And I started to sense it in myself, mm. um, probably, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I could start feeling it. So it took me a while to come up with a system for how to do it. Mm. Um, so really, that's what it's about. I mean, one of the, you know, so what I do is I just, people just apply to me, you know, this email, um, matthewburrows.studio at gmail.com reference ABC Projects Atelier yeah. and I email them forthcoming workshops. I do them normally about every six weeks. Um, a bit flexible depending on how busy I am, so how many shows I've got coming up, what I'm doing work-wise. Yeah. I try to do them you know, often enough that there's a regular program but not so often that it's, it has a negative effect on, on me making my work because yeah, right. that's what I do every day. Yeah. And it's it's intense, you know. It's it's not you know, it's two days, but it takes a lot. It takes a lot out of you. Mm. It's great fun, you know. It's 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 like a, you know it's like a, it's like an adventure. Two days adventure into the mind. Mm. Um, after those, you know, and because of that, I can't do them too often. So occasionally, I do two a month if it's really busy month. By then, I get myself a bit of time off, <laughs> yeah. you know, afterwards because it's you know it takes its toll. So they just apply, and I, I, I don't really have a criteria for it. I did at the beginning, but what I've noticed over the years of doing it is that it almost doesn't matter. And actually, one of the things that is really useful is there's a slight breadth within it. You don't want everyone at the same level, because it's about bringing different experiences to set problems. And really, you don't need to be well-practiced at critical um, engagement because there's a process for doing it. We use a process for doing it and everyone does it the same way. So um, I've had, you know, people who have been, you know, major prize winners of major international uh, international prizes doing it and graduates doing it at the same time. Yeah. 
Um, and they get the same experience out of it, and they both contribute in the same way. Yeah. So it's a real kind of, it's a real leveler in that way. It's yeah. critically a real leveler, and it's a really powerful, what I've noticed is that that's a powerful thing in itself. It can take people a little bit of, you know, one of the things I do is I don't, when people apply and they're given a place, I don't tell them who's coming on it until they, you know, they find out when they turn up. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is that I don't want people creating assumptions about whether they think they're good enough or not good enough or they're more superior or not superior. I want people to come along on a level ground so we're all the same. Turn up, we're all asking the same set of questions. We're all trying to find the same approach. As soon as you end up with an environment where people are intimidated by somebody else's success or feeling that somehow they're above other people, it just isn't helpful. Um, so I don't have any of that. And so in, in, I don't give out names before the actual day. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I think that's great. <laughs> and you might be getting a few more applications, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I put a note upon, I mean, I had to, I don't even, uh, and I've always run it just through my own website. And um, over the last week, I've realized very rapidly that I'm going to have to change that. <laughs> and I had to very rapidly set up uh, a kind of holding account, uh, which isn't active yet. People can just go through my website for now mm. and click on ABC projects to get, to get inf information. And that's matthewburrows.org is the website. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and then eventually I'll post a link to what will be ABC Projects Atelier website. And um, they, there's also at ABC Projects Atelier on Instagram, which I just have to set up just to put some information out there yeah. so people can see it. Great. Um, it's, again, it's a bit more, you know, just a holding account for now, just so if anyone wants to know anything, they can go to that and have a look. Um, that gives a bit of basic information. Yeah, great. Um, so now I, I, I think, obviously, we, we touched on it right at the beginning. Um, but um, I think we should recognise what the Artist Support Pledge is, um, the, the most recent initiative that, that you've set up. Um, and for anyone kind of who who doesn't know... <laughs> um, um, there what, are still a few, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, but maybe you could just uh, describe what it is, why you did it, and why you felt it was important to set it up. Yeah, well, I mean, roughly what it is, is it's, it's, it's a culture. It's a, a rapid gift culture. And what I mean by that is that it has a quick turnaround. So it's, you, it, it creates a kind of, um, generates a kind of economy for artists rapidly and immediately. So that was my kind of, uh, one of the things that was important to me, but also it creates a culture of its own. So they were the two things I felt it had to have. It had to have an economic model that was immediate because people were need, in need now, not six months, not three months, not three weeks, but now. Mm. And um, that economic model had to have an ethos. It couldn't just be about greed. It couldn't just be about getting money. Because in my view, that was the last thing we needed to be kind of generating more of. More greed was not going to work. And really that came out the back of, well, 10 days ago, I was sitting, sitting at my dining room table. And I just had to cancel some ABC Projects Atelier. I'd had emails and messages from friends who were saying, all my work's gone. Today's my last day of work. And most of these people are kind of working the gig economy. So they're, you know, they're either lecturers or technicians or they're about to have an exhibition opening or whatever. So if all of those things are cancelled, they don't get paid. And, you know, at that point, we're talking 
three months of no pay. Now, as you know, a lot of your listeners are probably aware, most artists work right down at the bottom of their overdraft limits most of the time. <laughs> yeah. So there isn't much buffer. Um, <laughs> and surviving for three months with no income, I thought this is potentially terrifying for a lot of artists out there. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, part of that, I sort of thought, okay, I've got to create overnight a microculture and economy. I know this, it, now I say it, it sounds like, well, yeah, of course, that's what you've gone and done. I really didn't think I was going to do what I've done. I, I, I was thinking much smaller. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, sort of, okay, if I could generate a bit of money for a few friends, mm. you know, maybe 10 mates, you know, if I could help them get through the next month or two, yeah. maybe just pay the rent, then that was going to be a big achievement. You know, that was going to be something, you know, I could pay myself, you know, a little bit for the next... <laughs> Three months, I would be happy, you know, because I cancelled everything, everything, all of my events, activities, everything was cancelled. Mm. And not only that, but I was thinking, okay, at the end of these three months, it isn't just going to start again. You know, it's going to be time before it starts. So that's not, it isn't three months without work, it's three months without work and then three months of, well, what happens next. Mm. So it didn't look very pretty as a picture. Um, and I sort of dwelt on that really thinking, okay, one of the things I always do with ABC projects, I always sort of start with the facts and I say, okay, look at the evidence that's in front of you. Don't think about what isn't there. Think about what you've got. Because the answer is nearly always right in front of you. You just don't have the eyes to see it. You can't see it clearly. So look at what's actually there. So I literally did that and I, I um, wrote down on a piece of paper uh, two things to what my assets were, what my greatest assets as an artist. And I wrote down artwork and generosity. That was it. And then I went for a run, which is, is normally where I have my ideas. Um, it's always a good place to have ideas. I always come up for a run with loads of ideas. And I literally had that aha moment where I thought, okay, um, We've got to sell some work because that's the only way at the moment we're going to generate any money, but there's no art market. That's disappeared overnight. So we've got to create a new art market immediately. So I thought, okay, the work's got to be cheap enough to sell immediately, like right now, not, not tomorrow or, you know, in, in three weeks. And then I thought, well, actually, that's interesting. That sits very well with the idea of generosity because if I put a work on at a significantly lower price than it would be in the normal market, that's an act of generosity for me just to start the ball rolling. So I'm saying, okay, I'm going to donate this work at a significantly lower level. So I thought, okay, that's a good idea. So I thought we could sell some art and that, that, that'll make some money. I sat with that for a few miles and then, and then it suddenly dawned on me that, you know, it kind of felt a bit opportunistic and a bit cynical. And I felt it didn't, it was a kind of an entry into it as an act of generosity, but I thought there had to be an exit of generosity as well. Mm. You have to go in generously and exit generously. So I thought, okay, let's say when you've reached a thousand pounds, you have to donate more some money back to buy another artwork. So I thought, okay, you've got to donate two hundred pounds. Initially, actually, I came with the two hundred pounds first. I thought, okay, let's keep it simple. The limit is two hundred pounds. So anyone could put work in it under two hundred pounds. Anybody, you know, school child could do it. Anyone could do it. Anyone who thinks they're an artist could put in, could value their work at under 200 pounds. It's a real leveler. So I thought, okay, it's got to be an equation of 200. So you've got to give 200 back. 
So initially I thought, okay, when you reach 2,000, give 200 back to 10%. Mm. I dwelt on that for a little bit. And then I got back from my run and I was sort of sitting there thinking about it. And I thought, 200 pounds, you know, 200 pounds at 2,000 pounds, 10%, it's kind of not painful enough. (laughs) You know, I sort of thought, generosity has to feel slightly painful. If it's easy to give money, if you're giving out of, you know, because you've got stacks of it, it's, it's meaningless. Mm. You've actually got to give something that's meaningful for it to be genuine generosity. Otherwise, it's patronising. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's just, it's just another form of power. We've had too much of this power. You know, the world, our environment is in the state it's in because of the abuse of this power. Mm. So I sort of felt like that can't be the model. If this model is going to be something that has any, any traction, if it has any truth to it, it's got to be genuine, it's got to have integrity. So I thought, okay, you reach a thousand pounds, you give £200 back, you spend £200 on, on, on you know, another artist or multiple artists' work, but it's £200 to so 20%. That feels slightly painful, that feels slightly uncomfortable, given that we've already put the work on at significantly lower than its value market, its value, its market price. Well, for me, I mean, maybe not for other people, but for me. And I thought, yeah, that's a good model. I sat with that for a few hours. I, I thought I'd test it out on a few people just to see what they thought. I did, and they, they all kind of winced. And <laughs> I thought, well, that's good. If they're wincing, it means they think it's painful too. <laughs> yeah. um, so I thought that was a sign of a, you know, a good way of acknowledging whether it might be, uh, it might work. And then I just literally was sitting on the sofa in the evening with a glass of wine. I thought, okay. I'll do it. Let's just do it. Let's just go for it. So got an image of a print, put it on my Instagram account, wrote a brief bit of text to go with it, with how it worked. Um, didn't think about it too much, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. I've rewritten that text since because I hadn't thought about it enough. <laughs> I realised now, you know, as soon as the press get hold of it, they find um, all sorts of loopholes that you thought of when you're sitting there drinking your glass of wine. Um, and they just posted it. Then thought nothing of it. Um, one episode into sort of one uh, yeah one episode into watching um, House of Cards and one of those prints sold. I thought it's all right. You know, I didn't expect that to be so immediate. Mm. And then you know, next episode it was box set. Uh, <laughs> another one is sold. And I thought, okay, this is actually quite useful, isn't it? <laughs> so anyway, thought nothing of it. Got up the next morning and I'd made thousand pounds, so I was able to buy another piece of artist's work. Mm. And by that point, there was already a couple of other people who had made the pledge. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. Happy to buy one of their pieces. It's great. I'm going to help them do what they do, and they're going to move on. Unfortunately, it was good work, so I didn't have to worry too much about it. An artist I'm more than happy to kind of um, support. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll give it a bit. I'll give it a bit more attention. I'll actually, I'll actually launch it. As a, as, a, a, as a movement, as a campaign. So I came up with the what is now the red logo, our support pledge, which is all over the world now. And it's about to launch in Japan. Uh, it's launching now. Wicked. Uh, we're doing a big launch on Sunday. Oh, that's so it's good. Russia. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. We're just starting to get into Asia. So it's in Malaysia, Japan, Taiwan. Um, it's there now. They have their own Taiwan version. And um, Russia started to sort of get take off a couple of days ago. That's incredible. Um, it's literally completely global. And I initially I was a bit unsure, you know, I started getting global 
because I thought it might touch you know, a few people mm. in the southeast of England. I mean, that was it. Yeah. Really. <laughs> but the, my network of friends and colleagues, that's what it would touch. My initial thoughts were. But that logo and the text that went with it, and that's now um, a little strap line that generosity is infectious absolutely went viral. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, I've spoken at a lot of meetings this week, and lots of people said, yeah, how did you come up with this? How do we know where that come from? Well, you know, I've been working on it for 12 years, yeah. and it's not, it didn't just come out of thin air. It was just, I was lucky enough to come up with an equation of generosity plus generosity equals generosity. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. That's the equation. You know, it's nothing, it's nothing particularly complicated. Mm. And it works on a 20% basis. That's it. It's it's really straightforward, and I realise now that was a really compelling message to in a world where people need a positive, affirming, generous message right now. Mm. Yeah, well, it's 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 a model that works, and me personally, it's it's a fantastic and it's an important thing that you've started, um, and I know I, I appreciate the work that you've, that you've put into it already, and I'm sure there's plenty of artists around the world that that feel the same way. Um, so I hope this yes, generosity I've kind of a lot of messages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I hope this generosity continues to build, and this is just the beginning of something, uh, you know. Um, and kind of, and we continue to help each other out in one way or another. Yeah, I mean that's a. I mean it's it seems strange that it's only so when it's ten days in, and it feels like it's ten years old. Yeah. You know, I've been I've really done ten years worth of work in ten mm. days. It's been absolutely insanely intense. And the ambition, really, when I started it, was to get us through the next three months. Yeah, that's that was my, and I thought that was, I thought that was really ambitious. I thought it might only last a few weeks. It still might, you know. Who knows? We don't know. We mm. just don't know because this is not, it's not something I can control. All I'm actually doing is trying to maintain the integrity of the message. That's it. It's hard to do that. You mm. don't get me wrong, because especially when you're really tired and you really feel like not being generous. Um, I have to remind myself every day that this is built on the generosity of thousands of people. It's not, my, it's not you know, I, I just put a little bit out. I put mm. so a little seed of generosity, that was it. Yeah. And all I've actually really done is utilise that generosity in return to keep that message out there. So, I mean, I get, it, you know, at one point I was getting sometimes 100 messages a minute, to get more than one a second. So, like... And I had one 48-hour stretch where I did not go away from my phone for less than 44 hours. Wow. I was consistently answering messages, one, two, three, just literally. And I tried, I mean, you know, I'm so sure the odd person got a very abrupt reply, um, you know, one or two words. But um, I tried as much as I could to, to be genuinely generous with, with my replies and to foster that sense that, you know what, you are all welcome. I'm not going to start quibbling about who needs what, who who is who actually should be supported, and who shouldn't be supported. Everybody is my is my everyone, anyone, everybody. Mm. Generosity does not make distinction, and I've kept that message, and I've kept that. I've tried to keep that in myself each day. Every day I get up, well, don't get up. Sometimes I don't get a chance to get up. <laughs> um, and remind myself that that's what it's about. Do not forget it. 
you know, keep that as your message. And if you start, if I start forgetting it, I'm sure that my family will remind me, yeah. and they quite enjoy reminding me. So it's <laughs> <laughs> to tell to tell dad or husband to sort of, you know, uh, be generous. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I am conscious that I need to let you go for your lunch, Matthew, but um, before we kind of near the end of our chat, there's a few questions that I ask all of our guests toward the end, toward the end of, of our chats. Um, and, and the first of which is, um, if you could swap seats with me and you could visit any artist or person in history, living or dead, who would you visit and what might you want to ask them? I would like, to, you know, it's funny over the years, and this has changed quite a lot. I think, um, you know, if you'd asked me this a few years ago, I would have said something like Giotto or um, Goya or something like that. Mm. Um, I think I kind of pretty much know enough about that to not need to actually meet them. I might be a bit disappointed. <laughs> yeah. I might find they're not so nice after all. But, <laughs> doesn't take anything away from their work. I think I'd like to go way back. I'd like to go, you know, 100,000 years ago. Mm. I'd like to go and see, you know, the cave painters. I want to know what they were doing because we don't know what they were doing. Mm. You know, we don't know why they did it. We don't know why these amazing um, images exist underground in caves. What was their relationship to it? What did they see? Because the reality is, and it's a reality I think we as modern people have to face and have to acknowledge this. We have been one of the most unsuccessful civilizations in human history. In 3,000 years, we have destroyed the planet. And in the last 30 years, we've done most of the damage. So actually, you know, I think it's shameful. And, and you know, we have to take responsibility for it. I, keep, I, I say this to people and they say, oh, it's not our fault. You know, I think, no, I'm sorry, but it is. Now, you know, I've done my best as I can to kind of not do damage, yeah. but that's not enough. You know, we all have to contribute to a different way of living. And for 200,000 years, people survived on this planet successfully. They cooperated, they developed cultures that were complex, that developed um, work practices that were in harmony with nature. Hunter-gatherers didn't work more than 19 hours a week. They worked with systems that were both uh, that of, uh, of equality, because everybody had to do the same thing. They worked within systems where everyone was fed, fed and housed. It was, it was a shame upon their community if someone was homeless, if someone was hungry. Um, they developed artistic cultures that thrived for tens of thousands of years, not 10 years or two years, or even, I mean, we look at some of the great movements of art, 100 or 200 years, abstract expressionism or um, the renaissance you know we're talking maybe hundreds or tens of years that those cultures thrived imagine a culture surviving for tens of thousands of years that's mind-boggling now we don't know why that's the case but they must have been doing something that was unique and amazing to be able to survive in harmony with the environment, in harmony with themselves, with their fellow man, with their, the creatures in which they, they um, shared this world with and made beautiful things out of it. So there's this idea that somehow our modern world 
has given us leisure and given us the ability to make great art. And give us, well, most people work a very long working week these days. Most people are too tired at the end of the week to do anything but be entertained. Mm. Art's become mere entertainment. It doesn't do anything but anticipate our some desire somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, in a way, you know, the worst, art's become kind of pornography. It's become a kind of, it's replaced real relationships with sort of participation. Whereas if you could have an understanding of art that was a genuine response to ourselves, each other, and the ground at our feet, and we did have that for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, if not longer, we don't know because the evidence isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. But there were two-legged um, creatures walking around that were like us for millions of years, so we don't know what was there. I mean, I find that as an idea extraordinarily exciting. I'm not saying we should all go back and live in caves and live off the land, because that's just not possible. But moving forward, I'd like to think that we could rethink our cultural values. What do we actually live? What are the values we live by? When we talk about sustainability, what do we mean? What do we mean by sustainability? Is sustainability just buying an electric car or putting solar panels on your roof? Or is it actually a different way of living? Is it about respecting the environment in a different way? Is it about respecting the dignity of all human beings in a different way? Is it about respecting the dignity of people in all nations, of all races, of all ethnosystems, of all religions in a different way? Not condemning, but supporting, understanding. I mean, I read a, an interesting fact a few weeks ago, which terrified me, that I think it's something like every two days a culture dies. So a language system dies, and with it, its cultural system, its mythologies, its systems. That is shocking. I mean, we are killing our ethno uh, ethnology as quickly as we're killing our ecosystems. You know, it's it's the same, and it's all done under this idea that somehow our, our global idea of uh, growth and capital growth is supreme in every single way. Well, it's made some people very, very rich yeah. at the expense of many people. And if you looked at the percentage of how many people in the world, I mean, only 10% of the people in the world exist in a developed um, capitalist society. So only those 10% are actually living anywhere near that um, so-called wealth factor. And of that 10%, only 0.something percent are living in the top echelons. So it is not a fair and um, a fair system, really, for making the world a better place. We've just bought into the mythology of it. I mean, don't forget that growth, the idea, this, this idea that some external, sort of continuous growth and progress, it's a myth. It's a story we're told. So we buy into a set of values. Now, it might be a good story, and largely that's what we're told. We're told that it's the good story. This is the good news story of modern, sophisticated, developed societies well actually maybe it's the bad news stories of modern unsophisticated overdeveloped fat societies societies that have consumed far too much of the world's resources and because of that we've got unfound i'm sounding all political than <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry i'm ranting on about politics no it's important but you know it's that's i think what we need to address as artists, we need to think about what we do seriously in relationship to that. I don't have an answer to it. You know, mm. so I'm not saying 
I've got an answer to how it should look. That's not the point. The point is we need to address it. We need mm. to look at it. And we need to do it sensitively. And I think that's exciting because actually that's giving us, at the end of this, if we're all serious about moving on as artists and developing a cultural, a set of cultural values and a, re- a, re- a set of relationships to one another in the environment that, it, that is genuine and has a future, we need to be asking those questions on every level, technologically, culturally, scientifically, politically, socially. And I think that's, I find that really exciting. Yeah. It's just, it's a minefield of possibilities. And it, it, it strips away all of those sort of power structures that have been so prevalent in the art world for the last, well, for the last few thousand years, but certainly in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> and I might upset a few people, I'm sure. I'm any of my friends. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, a, a positive question to end on: um, Has there been a piece of advice that you've been given, or something that someone said to you that's kind of carried through with you as a person and in your practice? You can remember. I'm sure there is. Um... Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> I'm sure there is. I've, I've, I've answered so many questions yeah. this week, but that should, have been, should be one that I could answer very easily. <laughs> I, today, I think I've kind of... Uh, I think the last... It, it eludes me. Yeah. And there's lots of advice I've been given. I think maybe if I... If, if there's one thing I've learned and maybe a piece of advice that I wish I'd known, maybe, mm, yeah. which somebody had said to me 30 years ago, is know what your values are. And if you don't know what they are, find out what they are and nurture them. So spend time with them, think about them, play with them, work out how you really understand them. What are you know? And I, I try, I also try to get everything down to three because it's an easy, it's a sort of nice, clean number. I mean, it's never that easy, obviously. It, it's, it's it's fluid. Mm. But for example, if I said to somebody, okay, what are the three main values you live by in your life? Just think about it. I don't, it's not about giving an answer. It's about just thinking about it and, and and reflecting on it and allowing that to be part of your life and nurturing that. When you get a sense of something that matters to you, you know, a value that matters. So generosity matters to me. I think it matters. So I, I spend time nurturing it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time nurturing it this week, yeah. <laughs> more than usual. Um, and in my work, for example, sort of layering really matters to me and colour matters to me but I'm not very good with colour, so I use layering as a way of dealing with colour. Mm. So that's a value, and I so I nurture that. I play with it. I spend time thinking about it, looking at it, looking at artwork that does it. If you know what your values are, it enables you to sort of, in a way, that's the sort of landscape your map is trying to navigate. That's the sort of world that you are. That's the ground at your feet. Mm. That's the landscape you stand in metaphorically. It's much easier to navigate the land when you can see it and feel it than when you're navigating somebody else's landscape, which is what a lot of artists end up doing. They end up making art that somebody else is making because they think that's what they should be doing. But there's, there, you know, you end up standing in your own landscape painting somebody else's, and that mm. just doesn't work. You've got to understand your own values. So I wish I'd understood that 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think implicitly we all kind of know that intrinsically we sort of know it but it can get a bit lost sometimes yeah yeah for sure um and what is next for you then and and for all the projects that you've got and is there anything you'd like to let people know about 
I know we've been talking about yeah, well, a, a lot within this last um, hour or so, but is there anything else that you'd, you'd like to... I'm working on an hourly basis. Um, okay. You know, it's uh, uh, 10 days ago, I would never in my wildest dreams have thought that I would be, be doing what I've done in the last week and be thinking in the in the ways I've had to think this week. I mean, I've had to rethink the way I think about the world completely in a week and in a, in a day at first. You know, even what my... You know, on, on a minute by minute basis, what what are my what are my thoughts on how I deal with accepting donations to to this course? You know, mm. if someone comes along with money and says, "I'll give you this money on the condition that," what what am I meant to say to that? Yeah. And that's you know, when you're asked to deal with those sorts of questions immediately, and you have got twenty or thirty of those questions coming every minute, you don't have the time to be pondering you've got to work things out pretty quick so i've had to i've had to really think about that this week and think think about you know minute by minute hour by hour what do i do it's got easier as the week's gone on in the sense that it's the initial pace of people coming online on it was overwhelming and um that's i've got that under control now so that's sort of the system's sort of working um, now largely i'm dealing with press issues, interviews and things like that, podcasts, <laughs> so one after the other, day after day, um, so dealing with that and also dealing, for me, with the exhaustion of it, you know, it's, it's, you, you run on adrenaline for that amount of time, it's, it's quite hard work, you know, and actually I've, what I've been trying to do for the last two days is pace it a little bit, it starts to be realistic and think actually if this movement is going to have a lasting legacy, I've got to be sensitive to how it develops, to how people respond to it, to maintaining its integrity, to being, um, to, to not allowing it, not allowing my tiredness, if you like, to to have that compromised because I make decisions that aren't good decisions. So, you know, I've I've had been very lucky to have some great support over the last week from people advisors and friends, um, collaborators. I mean, I've been working with friend um, Keith Tyson, who set up the um, Isolation Art School, which is sort of a learning version of um, Artist Support Pledge. I mean, it's a sort of different model, really, because it's much more community-based, much more about artists as learners and as as um, creating a culture of learning. So it's a different sort of thing, really, mm-hmm. but we, we felt that it was nice to have a kind of learning platforms too. Um, through just to advice I've had from sort of people in the field who know about this kind of thing and I'm very new to this kind of thing so I've, I've had a lot of support over the last week and moving forward really it's about building uh, my next real task is is to build a kind of group of people around me who can help support me um, advise me um, appropriately in the right ethos because that is important to me. You know, I, I don't want this to be compromised by power structures or by money or by game. You know, it's um, I'm I'm not making any money out of this. I'm any any money I make from selling work is going right back into making this work. So I'll probably come out the poorest at the end of this of everybody, <laughs> ironically. Um, but you know, that's all right. I'm not complaining. I could stop. I could stop and not do that. So, I, you know, it's not, I'm not, I don't want to make that sound like um, a bad thing or, or, or anything like that. It's simply that 
this is this is this is an opportunity of a lifetime. I think this is like the great creative act. It's an act of creativity that I never thought I would ever be a part of. I've never even imagined it could exist, um, and not sure anyone could. I mean, the I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people this week, economists, all sorts, and they're all, they all ask me the same: How on earth did you come up with this idea? And when I explain it, I think, yeah, it kind of does sound quite interesting, but. I, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. It wasn't that interesting when I just came up with it. it sort of, you know, okay, all right, it's got to work. It's got to be quick, and it's got to be generous. That was it. That was the set of questions I was trying to answer. Mm. So moving forward, really, that's the next stage to respond to what happens next. Obviously, as COVID nineteen and the pandemic unravels, the landscape, you know, the cultural landscape and the societal landscape is changing by the hour, by the day. So I'm trying to be sensitive to that. Sensitive to its changing to the changing needs of artists out there. So one of the things I'm noticing is it's not just about artists surviving financially, although that's obviously significant because that puts huge pressure on artists. But a lot of artists I've noticed are struggling to make work. Um, they can't make work when they're worried about what's going on out there outside yeah. the door and, you know, and understandably so. If I wasn't doing this right now, I don't know whether I'd be making paintings. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be. I don't know what I'd be doing, if I'm honest. Um, so kind of well-being is something I think is something we've got to start thinking about. I don't know how to deal with that yet. I haven't announced it. Um, and it might be something that we move through the isolation art school. Um, certainly that's already part of the isolation art school. But it's something that is, is dear to my heart in a, thing, in a sense that I think that, you know, the art world shouldn't just be about selling art and economics. It should be about maintaining the, the, the sort of the culture of what we do as an art, as an art, as an artist, and maintaining that the integrity and the depth and the um, breadth of that. If we can maintain that depth and that breadth, and keep that going, even if it means you, someone is just stuck in their bedroom or in their lounge for weeks on end, that's amazing, you know. And one of the things I always say with that is to remember, and I tell this myself all the time: if I ever get stuck in my work, and what I do is I sort of just look at the, the ground by my feet. And the room that I'm sitting in, or the in my garden, or whatever it is, wherever I am, and I, I say to myself, the world right here, right now, is just as complex, just as exciting, just as amazing as it is anywhere else, and anywhere else it has been in history. So, the failure to do anything with that is a failure of my imagination. So that's what I need. To, you know, always that's what I tackle. I think, okay, it, look at it, really look at it. Don't don't look at what you want to be there. We think should be there. Just have a look. Just have a look and respond to it. So I think that is a kind of message that I think I want to start working with. I don't know how to fit it in. Why it might not fit with what I'm doing right now, but that's the sort of thing that I, you know, I'm keen on kind of propagating. Mm. And at the end of this, who knows? I've no idea where this is going. You know, the legacy of this is something that's sort of sitting in the back of my head all the time because I keep getting asked about it, not because I haven't an answer to it, but. Yeah. Uh, I guess a lot of artists and a lot of art world, you know, gallerists, um, people in the art sector, saying, you know, what's going to be the legacy? And I, well, I really don't know. I don't, I don't know what it's going to look like in the end, in three months' time. But I think maybe, just maybe, I'd hope that the legacy of this might be, just be another form of economy that might sit within or beneath or around um, the art world of galleries that show work at higher prices which need to exist i'm not against that don't get me wrong because i show in those galleries too and if i'm making big 
ambitious paintings. They take time, they're expensive to make. You can't charge £200 one of those because it wouldn't be effective. But if artists at almost any level can generate regular, sustainable, and sustainable is important, income, that means their practices have a future. That means that they can work consistently. Now, whether that will work on a long-term model, I don't know. Who knows? This is so new, nobody knows. Um, but that's exciting. I mean, that's yeah. really exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So whether a whether hashtag our support pledge is still around in a year or ten or a hundred, who knows? But uh, it'd be nice to think that it could be, and it might create a kind of sub um, economy for artists that is both. And what not only is allows artists to survive financially, but this is this is the thing that I didn't expect from this, and it's the response that I'm getting in messages a lot of the time. Well, and not only that people are feeding their kids and paying their rent, but actually it's a very powerful thing to put the artists in the role of being patron. Yeah, you know, they're not only they selling their work, but then they get to be patron too. And so many artists are so excited about supporting another artist. Because mm. largely patrons are people who don't even, aren't even in the arts. They're people outside of the arts who want to donate to the arts, which is great. I don't have a problem with that. But to put artists in a position of patronage, that's really powerful. And to put every artist who joins and mm. participates in a position of patronage, that's really powerful. Yeah. And that's the surprise, I think, out of this. Mm. Patronage is, is, is empowering. Yeah, so much so. Um, well, I just, I, well, I, I, firstly, I want to wish you the best of luck with all this as, as you move forward with it. Um, thank and, you, David. Thank you. And thanks so much for giving me your time. I know you're an extremely busy man and um, everything's crazy for you at the moment. So, yeah, to have you sit with me. It is, but I have to say, these are the things that I really care about. You know, doing podcasts with artists and artists' communities, this is where I, I need to be. Mm. Yeah, it's lovely doing the big stuff. Yeah. You know. Well, it's good to have you here. <laughs> this is what matters. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. Um, thank and, you, David. Uh, yeah, keep well, keep safe, and uh, yeah, have a <laughs> have, have a nice lunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Matthew. Thank you. Okay, thanks, David. Cheers. Bye now. Well, thank you very much for listening. Please find more information about what was discussed in the podcast in the notes section. And if you like what you heard and would like to keep up to date with new episodes, um, then please subscribe or follow us depending on which listening platform you use. And head over to our Instagram page, at to the studio, which we regularly update with posts about each guest we have and all other goings on as well. To the studio is produced by the audio wizard and all-round great guy that is Theo Bird. And I would thoroughly recommend getting in touch with him for all your audio needs. On Instagram, he is birdperson. Bird is spelt B-Y-R-D, person. Also, if you can spare a moment to leave us a lovely review, that would help us out a lot. And it allows us to reach a few more ears than we are currently. And lastly, if you've got any suggestions or opinions you wish to share with us, then please feel free to do so on any of our social media platforms or send us over an email. Our details are again in um, the notes section uh, of each episode of the podcast. Well, thanks very much again for listening and we'll see you next time.